China-African relations are more confusing than ever. COVID-19 is changing everything, impacting geopolitics, trade, race relations, and more. The China-Africa Project's daily email newsletter is the best way to stay on top of the day's fast-changing news and understand what's going on. This is the only daily digest of China-Africa news available. Try it out and see if you like it. Sign up today at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Cat Managing Editor Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, this is the season of summits right now, and we just had the summit in Europe where it was the Europe-Africa Summit, and on the agenda was a lot of discussion about infrastructure, about sustainability, about finance, and yes, including digital. And that talk about digital really reflects the angst that continues to persist in the United States and in Europe, and also to some extent in Japan as well, about the role of Chinese technology in Africa's digital infrastructure. And it's just interesting, Kobus, to see how in many ways the conversation has not really evolved over the years. And this is going back five, six, seven years, looking at the concerns about spying and Huawei and privacy, even though the scale of Chinese technology engagement in Africa has ramped up massively now. Uh, the discourse hasn't really kept pace, I think, with the change. Yes, I think so. And, you know, so so there isn't, the, you know, the, like, for example, all of these new kind of projects that, that go far beyond kind of internet provision, like, you know, kind of smart city projects, for example, they, they kind of get mentioned as as a kind of a scare, you know, a, 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 a kind of a scary point in a list of scary points. But they're not actually, there's no real grappling with what the full implications of them are. There's also very little grappling with with the fact that, the, that all of these kind of revelations that we've seen over the last while around issues like the Pegasus project, for example, of non-Chinese kind of, you know, software being used by different African African um, players to survey other African players. You know, so, so, so the... the there is still this kind of idea that all surveillance is Chinese, which is which is not the case. And when we talk about Chinese technology in Africa, too often the discourse and the debate around it is boiled down to just one word, Huawei. And that's a vast oversimplification. And when we think about Chinese tech, let me just set the table here and, and, and kind of put it into a structure, what people call the technology stack. Now, normally in the technology stack, it'll be actually arranged hierarchically. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to throw out a whole bunch of different areas where Chinese tech is now playing a definitive role 
in the African tech landscape. And then we're going to dive into it later on with our discussion with our guest. So when we talk about Chinese tech in Africa, obviously Huawei, ZTE, these are the big players that have built so much of the infrastructure. There's a number out there, and it's not really... I don't like the number, but there's a number out there that says that Huawei alone has built 70% of Africa's 4G networks. And the reason why I don't like that number is I don't quite know where it came from. It's just one of these numbers now that's become lore. But we do know that Huawei has built an enormous part of the 3G and the 4G network and is now building vast parts of the 5G networks in some parts of Africa. So that is the network telecom part of it. Then there are the undersea cables. There's the peace cable that will be making land point in Djibouti and also in Kenya. will then stretch through the Suez Canal. It'll go up to Marseille in France. Uh, this is the Pakistan-East Africa Connecting Europe cable. So that is another big part of it. There are services the, on the app layer. So Boomplay, which is the number one music service. There is Opay, which is a fintech service, a mobile money service. There's StarTimes, which is now delivering content over mobile and via satellite TV. So we talk about private sector services are also very, very important. Then, of course, there's the hardware layer. Transin, Xiaomi, Oppo, these are all private companies who dominate the mobile handset space and also dominate tablets and internet connectivity and, and but particularly at the mobile space in terms of hardware. Uh, Transin alone has somewhere around 60% of the smartphone market. And there's really no indication that Samsung, Apple, or any other competitors catching up to them. Then there's industrial technology that's used in agriculture. Lots of ag tech. We covered a lot of ag tech last year. There's manufacturing technology. Robotics are coming into some of the auto manufacturing plants and things like that. So there's a lot of B2B tech that we don't see, but the Chinese are bringing it into Africa as well. The Beidou satellite navigation system. This is the competitor to the Galileo system in Europe and the GPS system in the United States. In fact, a lot of people don't know that the Beidou the navigation system has more satellites than uh, either of those two and covers more cities with more detail and has more coverage in Africa than either GPS or Galileo. And then finally, there are these below-the-line services. These are the services that we don't see. This is, again, an extension of the infrastructure. So a lot of people are surprised to learn that the very popular mobile money service, M-Pesa, is actually powered by Huawei Mobile Money. The new service in Ethiopia is powered by Huawei Mobile Money. That's Telibur as well. So there's a lot of this below-the-surface technology and the infrastructure side that Chinese technology is playing a very important role. So all of that together makes up the digital landscape where China is absolutely an indispensable, if not controversial, player. And let's dive into that because there was a fascinating article that came out recently on the Council on Foreign Relations website, China's Digital Silk Road and Africa's Technological Future. It was written by Motolani Agbebi, who is a researcher and instructor in the School of Management and Business at Tampere University in Finland. I've been a longtime admirer of Motolani and thrilled to have her on the show and joining us from Helsinki for the first time. A very good afternoon to you, Motolani. Good afternoon, Herrick and Kobus. Thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor to be on your show. Um, I've followed your work for many years now. Well, we're just so happy to have you. And again, this is the Mutual Admiration Society because we've been following your work for a very long time. 
We've been trying to get you on the show for some time, and it finally worked out to have you. So this is really fantastic. So I laid out this tapestry of technology services. Can you kind of help us stitch all of that together? How does this all fit together to, to build the story of what you talked about in terms of the digital Silk Road and Africa's technological future? Well, let's talk about China's involvement in this space um, in general. You've laid it out quite well already. Um, China has been heavily invested in Africa's ICT sector um, for many years now. Um, data from Sias Kari estimates a total of 12.8 billion US dollars from 2000 to 2019 in loans on technology-related projects. So China is very, like, it's a big player in this space. So we have Chinese technology exports to Africa, covers a wide range of products and services. And you've mentioned some of that in that introduction there. And this include, like, telecom network infrastructures, surveillance, um, um, smart city infrastructures, data centers, consumer products such as mobile phones and tablets, digital partnership with higher education institutions as well, um, research and development, innovation labs, and also they are involved in the capacity development space within this sector. So not only is there government-to-government engagement, but Chinese firms also work with telecom network operators in African countries. Um, and I presented this in, in the paper using this um, technology stack that shows how prominent Chinese companies are across almost all the layers of um, Africa's telecoms technology stack. So when we look at submarine cables, for example, satellites and broadband networks, you have um, the peace cable that you mentioned that is set to connect Asia, Africa and Europe. And you have Chinese companies like the Entong Group, Huawei Marine Networks, and Companies such as ZTE, CITCC, um, Huawei, all very active in this layer also in terms of um, their provision of satellites and broadband backbone networks. And then if we move up to data centers and cloud services, we see companies like Huawei, Will Cloud, Alibaba Cloud, China Unicom are all active in this space. And then talk about network provision, you already mentioned Huawei. Um, providing up to 70% of um, Africa's 4G networks. We have ZTE also very dominant in this space. And then all of this, or these two companies also work with these telecom operators and ISPs. And you would also find them in like, in terms of consumer products. So Ansets, and then we have companies like Transion that lead in market share in this area. So also looking at, Hubs, media platforms, mobile payment platforms. You have Boomplay, which the music streaming service that you mentioned by Transion, which is, by the way, reportedly has about 75 million users in Africa, which is a huge number. And then you have super apps like Hopay and the host of other services they offer under the Opera Group. And then there's the digital wallet and mobile money services, such as Ethiopia's Telebird which was developed by Huawei. And then let's not forget Chinese companies such as like Future Hub, Transion, that's Transion's um, venture capital, um, capital firm. And we have other firms like Ilhouse Capital, Code Capital, and so on in the venture, venture capital space. And these companies provide financing to tech startups in Africa. So the engagement is really very extensive and it's been ongoing for decades now. 
as and that started back when African countries were like liberating their or liberalizing rather their telecommunications sector. So we have quite a range of services and products and involvement by Chinese companies in this um, space in Africa. So you you mentioned all of these all of these different companies and and the kind of many decades of of involvement, but you know at the same time there's so, so there's all of this different internet work being done um, by Chinese companies in Africa and then the concept of the digital Silk Road is do you have kind of clarity about kind of like whether you know what what the role of the digital Silk Road as a concept is in all of this all of this kind of like internet provision and you know kind of how we should like like should we just assume that like all of these different projects actually fit into the digital silk road project or you know kind of like how how does one bring all of the internet provision on the ground together with the concept of the digital silk road yes certainly um Corbus, they do like fit into the digital silk road and perhaps maybe that's what's maybe a little bit different um, in the engagement in this area from what it was before the introduction of the digital Silk Road, which simply put is the technology dimension of China's Belt and Road Initiative. So in 2015, the Chinese government introduced um, the digital Silk Road and it's sort of designated to facilitate the flow of information and data in and around BRI countries. So essentially, it will connect countries along the BRI to China via submarine and terrestrial and satellite links. And it's in that way, it's a major component of the BRI. And the digital Silk Road is really wide in scope because it encompasses almost all things like technology related. So we're looking at service sectors such as e-commerce, smart cities, mobile payments, telemedicine, and processes such as um, big data, IoT, artificial intelligence, blockchain. So not only is the DSR wide in scope, it also covers a broad geographical area as it aims to enhance digital connectivity in and with participating um, BRI participating countries, which as of January 2021, 140 countries are believed to have signed an MOU with China on the BRI. And 40 of those are in sub-Saharan Africa. And all of them could potentially be participating in the DSR. So it's a pretty large undertaking, so to speak. Now, given the scope, it's reasonable to think that this is completely going to change the game of China's engagement in Africa's digital sector. But most likely this will happen. And it, it, it sort of is already happening. But as yet, we have very little information as to what actually constitutes the DSR in terms of what are the financing mechanisms of the DSR? How much money is going to be disbursed to these projects on the DSR? And how much has been disbursed so far? Um, now, one of, your, one of the guests on your show, I, I think it was maybe a, a few months back, Henry Tugendhat, he wrote a paper actually with Julia Vu, and they published this paper on the Cari website looking into the DSR. And what they found is that the largest financing for tech-related projects in Africa actually predates the launch of the DSR. So in that sense, it, this really just brings the four questions as to what does it mean? What does the DSR mean for African um, countries participating in it? And also tech-related projects in countries like African countries where Chinese companies already have extensive operations are being linked to the DSR, 
and being rebranded as DSR related or DSR projects. So at this stage, it's kind of a little bit difficult to quantify the DSR. Nonetheless, though, we, we, if we consider Chinese tech companies' dominance in this sector already, and then think about the con- continued engagement in this sector, which is to be expected, and then look at, well, a lot of African countries are also developing ICT infrastructures at the moment and also developing their digital economic plans. And these are all dependent, so to speak, on financing, equipments and know-how coming from China. And this is not, not least because of, of course, the, the, the lack of cost and viable alternatives in this sector in the first place. But also if we look at the commitments made under the Digital Innovation Programme at FOCAC, 2021. This kind of reinforces the, the fact that there's going to be more Chinese engagement to come in this sector. So your take on the digital Silk Road that you laid out in the article was quite nuanced. And you gave a little bit of the positive side, you gave a little bit of the concerns and the negative side. Uh, that is not the case from a lot of the analysis that comes out of places like Washington. And we interviewed a couple, we've interviewed twice now, actually, Jonathan Hillman, who's at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He wrote a book last year called The Digital Silk Road, China's Quest to Wire the World and Win the Future. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend everybody check it out. But in contrast to your assessment, his was quite negative. And he raised a lot of the concerns that we see reflected in the media coverage about Chinese tech in Africa, so that the spying controversies by Huawei at the African Union, Huawei allegedly taking video uh, data from the African Union, uh, Huawei employees, not the company, very important distinction here, Huawei employees facilitating surveillance and uh, suppression of dissidents in Uganda and Zambia, and the list goes on and on. There are a lot of concerns about the use of Chinese technology, particularly because there are no strings attached to the loans that authoritarian autocratic governments in Africa can use Chinese technology and Chinese personnel to roll back human rights and to uh, oppress dissidents and to, to, to create all sorts of trouble. Let's, before we go too far in our discussion, let's address this issue here about the dangers and risks associated with the use of Chinese technology in Africa? Yeah, of course, there, there are many implications, both negative and positive. Um, on the positive side, if you think about what Africa is going to gain from this engagement in the tech space with China, I mean, it's going to enhance con- connectivity. A lot of these projects are, are based on that, whether it's upgrading networks or laying um, submarine cables, all of those help in bridging the digital divide in Africa. And there is quite a divide, actually, um, if you consider or if you compare Africa to other continents. So this is going to help enhance connectivity around the region and also help African countries participate in the global digital economy. And as many African countries are looking to, you know, get away from dependence on natural resources, this is even increase, increase, is becoming increasingly important. So um, there, there are positives in that sense. And also when we think about negatives, um, you already mentioned some of those. Um, and also I mentioned some of those in the paper as well. Um, we could think about the potential for data to be passed on to authoritarian governments, to subvert, to subvert democratic practices or control their citizens or restrict the, just restrict use of internet in some way or the other. 
And also, we, if we think also about Chinese companies having access to data, in some way it helps the companies, doesn't it? Because, I mean, there's a lot of commercial gain in that sense for them, having the data to be able to develop products that suit the market better. And, but then on the other hand also, this data could also be passed on to, you know, authoritarian governments in Africa. And this is not particularly good for African citizens. So there are a lot of implications to it. But I think it's really important to, to kind of think, what else would there be if China wasn't heavily invested in this, in this um, sector? Like, there's so much infrastructural gap on, in other sectors in Africa, including telecoms. And without the engagement of, a lot, um, of these Chinese companies, of the Chinese government, um, I mean, this gap wouldn't be filled anytime soon. So that's a devil's choice, though, Kobus. And you and I have talked about this on so many occasions that the choice is oftentimes not between, say, Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung and Huawei. It's between Huawei or nothing. But a lot of the critics will say, and, and Kobus, I'd like you to address this because you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, that... Maybe it's better not to take Huawei if the price that you're paying, and Huawei, by the way, is just shorthand for, I'm doing what I was criticizing, I'm using Huawei as a shorthand for all Chinese tech, um, but maybe it's better not to use Chinese tech if civil rights are at stake, if surveillance is at stake, if the data is going back to China, if you don't know what's going on, all of these different things. Maybe it's better, say the critics, to just not do it and wait for the right package of financing and technology to come available. Kobus, what, what's your thought on that in terms of the trade-offs between like, okay, Huawei sucks. It may, it sucks in the sense of civil rights and civil liberties, but it's better than nothing. I can definitely see the value in the concerns about civil liberties. Um, however, I think I think that that kind of you know it's better to wait argument. Um, I think misses two big things. In the first place, it misses that that as as we mentioned up top, the Chinese aren't the only people surveying. Um, we've seen um, British, Italian, um, U.S. companies being being implicated in in you know kind of in facilitating surveillance by African governments in in many different cases. You know, kind of a really famous one, for example, is is a, a bunch of different Western companies being in, implicated in facilitating surveillance in Ethiopia. That was highlighted by Human Rights Watch already several years ago. Um, so it's not like if you if you ban the Chinese from Africa, then somehow mad, magically authoritarian governments don't don't spy on their citizens. That's just not true. And and what we've seen is that many Western co um, companies are, are more than happy to facilitate this. So you know, so to pretend that Western companies are somehow kind of completely blameless and the Chinese are these devils is just not realistic, you know, like no matter how many problems there are with Chinese tech. The other issue is that that the longer Africa remains off the internet, the more problems it causes. Um, you know, it's you, you have an incredibly young population, a, a population that is that you know would be the na a natural kind of fit with with digital digital economies and e-commerce and you know kind of the the kind of TikTok media sphere and so on. Um, now being cut off from from all of these opportunities, while there's very few other opportunities for them in the same societies. 
Jesus, um, you know, and and kind of African joint, you know, African kind of internet firms, the African internet sector, you know, has will be starved of, of oxygen without these networks. And there's no there's no kind of just just because Africa would be you know kind of would be waiting, for, you know, kind of for for kind of for other players to come on board, don't actually mean that those players would come on board. You know, it's it's a one point two billion um, market. And you know, kind of uh, presumably a very attractive market for 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 many tech companies, but these tech companies have, have so far not jumped on mass. You know, um, so there's you know Silicon Valley has has its own kind of like set of priorities, and Africa is really low on those priorities. So this this idea that Africa would then have to kind of wait for development, um, wait for sanctioned development, you know, kind of it just it ends up being incredibly paternalistic um, and really just bad for the continent. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of downside. Sides to 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 systemic underdevelopment. Um, the the other issue I think that one 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 of the really like problematic issues for me with this is that there is an assumption in this in this kind of China threat discourse in in relation to ICT provision in Africa, this kind of assumption that African governments are just kind of wholesale implement Chinese standards um, without kind of mixing them up or setting their own standards, and then that these surveillance systems are just going to work seamlessly. You know, and I think neither of those two is a given. Um, so, Motolani, I'd actually wanted to ask you: Do you actually see African governments starting to to implement Chinese um, internet standards? And if so, which of those standards are they implementing? Really good question. And on this topic, um, especially when we think of China's um, cyber governance model and the trend for certain countries in Africa to follow that model. In a way, um, I, I think we need to also think about this, not only in relation to just China, but looking, bringing the focus back on the governments that are doing this or that are moving towards this Chinese model in court. Um, so if we put that focus back on the governments and the political environments and situations in these countries, I think we will come up with something much more interesting, interesting findings that will help us further understand what's really going on and appreciate the complexity of the issue on ground. So SoftShark, a, a digital security company located in Amsterdam, they note that 20, in, since 2015, 31 out of 54 countries in Africa have blocked access to social media platforms. And these blockings are related to elections, and political protests. So it's important to understand the context in which these developments are coming out of because the situation is much more complex than often taught and more, more akin to like demand from these governments and China being like a model for them to follow. Um, many African leaders look to front-runner countries to draw lessons from in terms of like economic development or even political development. For example, if you look at Ethiopia under Prime Minister Meles Zenawi, look to draw lessons from China's economic success. However, these lessons have also been drawn from other countries as well. Like if you think back to the 70s and the 80s, um, Ethiopia really looked forward to or looked to draw lessons from the Soviet Union. So I think rather than a case of China actively, you know, putting in the effort to export its model of cyber governance or imposing that model on African countries. It's more a case of certain African countries or governments seeing it as a model that they could emulate to achieve 
whatever it is that the regime wants to. Like China, these countries also want to be able to like leverage ICT for economic development, but also keep control of the internet and how it is used. So, but the, if we kind of bring the discussion then back to China, does it benefit China that this model is con- conceived or being seen as like suitable for certain governments? Of course it does in, in a way because it, it legitimizes Beijing's model of internet governance and on a larger scale it also fosters like an in- international environment that is more tolerant of practices in this regard. In terms of how I see it in the African context, I think it's quite a challenge and perhaps almost impossible for the entire framework of, you know, China's internet governance model to be replicated in a lot of African countries, simply because these countries don't possess the necessary institutional framework and environment for such. Neither do they have the capacity, capabilities, and scarcely can they even afford to do so. So if we look at Nigeria's um, government's Twitter ban, which was ironically also like announced on Twitter and the backlash it received from citizens as well as, you know, civil society groups, including a lawsuit from a civil, civil society group, Serap, to the ECOWAS Court of Justice in, in Abuja, plus the impact that it had on local businesses, all, all of this kind of contributed to the government moving to end the ban. So in this sense, when we think about this um, sort of transfer of China's model of internet governance to African countries, we have to really look locally. What's happening in these countries? Why is there a desire to move towards this route? But I think that also what we need to also like focus on is what are the civil society organizations in that country? What are the government oversight mechanisms available in the political system in that country? What is it all about? Do they have a role to play? And I think they do have a role to play. Active civil society can challenge like the implementation of a model of media or internet governance that restricts li- civil liberties, um, as we've seen in the case of Iswatini, where civil society activists actually pursued legal actions against telecom operators like MTN, Iswatini Mobile, in order to get the companies to restore internet services following a shutdown ordered by the, the communications commissions in, in Iswatini in an effort to suppress, you know, recent demo- demonstrations in the country. So civil society organizations can actually play a huge role in ensuring that whatever they don't want in their countries in terms of this sort of transplanting this model doesn't happen. The focus should be on this government and, you know, the local political environments rather than like trying to convince African governments from engaging with China in this space or Chinese companies in this space due to the different, you know, risks and implications there are, I think the focus should be on sort of offering, like, you know, support to strengthen the democratic systems and fostering oversight mechanisms in these countries to ensure, and also ensuring that, you know, civil society organizations have the needed space and tools to be able to exercise agency and context contest the introduction of, you know, certain laws or the use of certain technologies in a way that undermines democratic processes in these countries. So it, and it's also important that countries also, well, 
whoever is partnering with Africa or wants to partner with Africa should invest in the development of infrastructure in the sectors. Not only China can do this, there's, I mean, other countries also have the capabilities to do so. And also invest in skills development in the area. There's like, um, there's enough space for other parties other than China to, you know, participate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oftentimes it is defined as just China's space, but I think the the dichotomy in the discourse breaks down to, well, there's the open internet, which is advocated by the U.S., and I'll say, because even Europe's definition of the internet is very different than the American definition. The United States, we don't have a GDPR, for example, which is a privacy uh, restrictions. And basically, companies like Facebook and Google can do as they please, and they've done as they've pleased up until now. Europe believes in much more privacy controls. And then you have the concept in China, which is the digital sovereignty model. And that's the idea where the state is in control of of the borders of the internet. And cyberspace is bordered just like a country is bordered. So therefore, the state has the ability to manage what comes in and what goes out the same way that it manages people who come in and people who come out. So in Africa, I agree with you that you're not going to see a wholesale import of the Chinese model simply because the policy apparatuses simply aren't there to enforce it. There's no other government in the world is quite like China's in terms of its ability to to execute like that. But it is going to be like a buffet a little bit where you or a, you, know, you go to the sushi bar and you can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So Senegal decided that they want to have a data center and a national data law now that routes all of the information through this new Huawei built data center. That is absolutely taking from the Chinese Internet governance model. Oh, by the way, out here in Southeast Asia last week, uh, Cambodia rolled out the new national internet gateway as well, much like what Senegal did. And that is being touted as the uh, also a copy of what China's governance model is and the new great firewall of Cambodia that's come up. So it's not just happening, by the way, in Africa as well. Then there was Ethiopia, as you mentioned, in the old days, but also in the new days, Ethiopia wants to set up parallel apps for social media so that they can better monitor them. So that's an interesting, and they use China as the example. And then you talked about Nigeria. Lai Muhammad, who is the information and culture minister, was very explicit that he likes the way that China governs and, and, and restricts and, and regulates the internet. And Aisha Buhari, who is the first lady, she too was very direct in her appeal for building an internet in Nigeria that emulated China's as well. That might reveal a little bit more about the gap between the governed and the governing, and that ruling elites in Africa may like the Chinese model a lot more than than the people do. That's certainly something there. But do you see bits and pieces of the Chinese model, not the whole thing wholesale, starting to gain traction in countries like Kenya, democratic countries like Kenya, South Africa? Because that's the concern that a lot of people in other countries have about the rollback of democracy and civil rights in these countries. Well, one, one example of a, a, a sort of model coming out of China that a lot of African countries are also starting to emulate in terms of policies is the data localization policies. That is gaining traction in Africa and a lot of other countries, mostly Western countries. Yeah, and that's what happened in Senegal. Yeah. That's exactly what happened in Senegal is the data localization. Yeah, but then there are several arguments to why these countries want to localize data. But then also you can see that it's something that China favors quite well and in one way or the other, you could, you could say that, yes, they're looking at China's model and thinking, well, China is doing that and it's working for them. 
and they are still successful and they are still able to, you know, make economic gains. So why can't we do the same? And this is what you're seeing with data localization policies. They start is starting to gain traction in Africa. I think Nigeria also has data localization policies of its own. And you could almost say that it's a model of the Chinese, Chinese policy in that, in that area. Um, in terms of, um, like going back to what I said about the local political environment, you could see in certain times, especially during elections, you, you, you find um, certain African governments restricting access to 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 social media or just basically shutting down the internet for a period of time in order to like suppress maybe demonstrations or or suppress certain information being available to the populace. So there are like strands that you could see seeping into Africa. And I would say we should be looking at African countries and looking at the peculiarities in their political systems and, and the local situation there to see why is this taking hold in these countries? I wonder how how kind of economics play into this issue, you know, kind of because obviously, you know, kind of one of, one of, one of the kind of complications of, of the Chinese internet system is that on the one hand, they, you know, they, they have this, this kind of, national walled garden basically this is kind of closed off internet system but at the same time they managed to 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 run incredibly successful e-commerce and and kind of and and these kind of super apps and so on within it so they china itself manages to run to to kind of balance this on the one hand very overweening kind of like interventionist state kind of management of the internet and on the other hand a, you know a very freewheeling kind of private sector you know on on that same internet that doesn't seem to me to be so easy to do if you're not china you know kind of if you not have if you don't have that massive population if you don't have the the level of technical capacity in the country you know kind of if you don't have the million plus people it takes to to actually scour the internet personally and you know do a form of like content moderation slash censorship um you know kind of for poor countries who also want to be on the internet to make money the way that for example rwanda has managed to to kind of to leverage kind of sales through chinese um, e-commerce sites you know kind of to 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 benefits benefit its agricultural economy you know how, how do you see that that balance playing out in africa uh, I think African countries have to be very worried of like, you know, trying to co- copy this model. Like, like we've mentioned already, we, there's just not enough capacity to do so. The institutions in Africa can't support it. The institutional capacity is lacking. And so there's no way to kind of approach this model that China has, especially in these early stages of sort of adoption in African countries. You can't. They, Countries can't, they can't afford to do so. You can afford to like, kind of have a, a robust digital economy and still have this kind of rigid system in terms of internet governance. I don't think the two can coexist in the African context quite well as it's done in China. You mentioned e-commerce early on. This is a new, exciting part of the ecosystem in Africa. There was some news that came out a couple of weeks ago that Ethiopian Airlines is going to be building a whole new terminal at Bole International Airport in Addis Ababa and considering purchasing five new 
Boeing 777 jets in order to facilitate the new e-commerce trades between China and Africa. Alibaba is starting to make a bigger play in Africa. People are using AliExpress more and more. What do you see in terms of the growth of China's e-commerce, both in terms of the front-end consumer-facing services, but also that China has really built up an expertise in the logistics and all the software that goes into it? And we see the Chinese presence here in Southeast Asia Quite prominently, we've got Lazada, which is the service that I use. Lazada is all owned by Alibaba. And so all of the tech now is Alibaba's logistics uh, technology behind it, powering Lazada. Do you see Chinese e-commerce technology and services coming into Africa in a big way in the next few years? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, Alibaba is already quite um, active in this area. With payment, digital wallets and mobile money services, that we already have in Africa. Alibaba is already collaborating with some of this, some of this um, companies in order to have Alipay on there. So I think it's going to be a huge, huge, um, huge area for African countries. It certainly will be useful in terms of um, facilitating trade between African countries and China. If one talks to to Western stakeholders and Western policymakers, particularly. Obviously, they are they are very anxious about the role of, of of companies like Huawei in Africa. They we've seen particularly from the United States, not the Biden administration as much, but still, um, you know, kind of the, putting pressure on these these kind of global South governments to not to not work with Chinese tech companies. And I think you know, overall, except in the case of very small countries that have very few options, this has largely been a failure. You know, kind of like we, like African African governments haven't haven't been kind of crazy about, or they didn't love being being forced to choose. Like some African leaders have been very tart about this. You know, particularly South Africa's um, President Samuel Ramaphosa, who said that you know all of this pressure is just because the Americans are are, are jealous, which you know maybe not the most diplomatic moment, um, and. Um, and, you know, so, so you know, kind of failing this kind of, you know, fr- from a Western perspective, failing that, you know, kind of getting African governments to completely kick companies like Huawei out. What, how do you think, what, what would be a more effective Western approach to ensuring things like civil liberties, ensuring kind of an open internet, um, you know, kind of dissuading, um, you know, kind of countries to dive completely into a Chinese-style kind of central central surveillance system, you know, kind of what would what would be a, a kind of a more sophisticated way of working with African African governments to to kind of get some of these things that that Western governments are obsessed about. Well, I, I think, first of all, it has to start with investing in, in the development of infrastructure in this sector. Um, and there's still room for a lot, of, a, a lot of development. So investing in the sector, investing in like skills and development in this area as well. So not only are Chinese companies, you know, providing the infrastructure, but they're also like investing in human capital, obviously to their home gains as well. But Outside of like investing concretely in the development of infrastructure, I think they could also support like civil society organizations in Africa, give them the tools necessary to be able to, you know, context the way that their governments are introducing certain laws or the use of certain certain technologies. Because we've seen like cases where civil society activists have risen up against such um, like the introduction of such rules or such policies that could have detrimental effect on, li- um, on civil liberties. So I think 
kind of supporting these organizations, these civil society organizations, is one way to go about doing this. And also um, kind of supporting the governments as well in a way that they can strengthen the democratic systems and also oversight mechanisms in these countries. But yeah, there are myriad of ways to do this, but then the way not to go about it is just simply telling African countries not to engage with Chinese companies or not to engage with China in this space. I think so far, a lot of African countries haven't listened or majority haven't listened. But if you offer something more concrete in terms of investments in the sector and also support to civil society organizations and even citizens knowing Knowing the basics about like, you know, security when you have a, a when you have um, a mobile phone, when you're accessing the Internet and all of that. I, I, I think there's a way to go with that. However, just simply telling them to not engage is not it's not going to work. And it hasn't so far. Just want to close our discussion today by looking forward at next generation technologies. We've talked a lot about current technologies and past technologies But now let's talk about artificial intelligence. And every time that a journalist approaches me to say that they're doing a story on Chinese tech in Africa, invariably it comes down to companies like Hikvision and Cloudwalk that are using uh, artificial intelligence to gather visual data using smart cities and cameras and whatnot. And then what are they doing to with that data? Where is it going? Question is, is that a point of concern that people should be worried about in terms of AI standards and also the use of all the, that camera data that the Chinese are picking up or potentially picking up, let me correct myself there, in Africa with the deployment of all these smart city programs that are in fact powered by artificial intelligence? Well, I, I think there are concerns in that area, but then also we have to think about the data also helps these companies to develop their capaci- um, capacity to develop products that are more suited to the continent. So in a way, it's, it's like there are good things about it. And maybe we also have to be concerned, especially when it comes to things like CCTV and how the government can use that against maybe political opponents or to just to monitor people's movements and activities, which doesn't, doesn't impinge on people's um, civil liberties. However, like in a way, this, 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 um, Access to this data will help Chinese companies develop their products. And that could also benefit African populists, um, African consumers as well. But then in, in another way, it also helps, gives Chinese companies an edge because they have all of this data that can also ensure that they are at the top of like um, development in the field. They are also able to like shape policies and, and how technology in this area is developed. So it all depends on how you see it, but certainly there are risks and there are benefits to be had. Yeah, I guess the concern that a lot of people have is that the data doesn't just go to a company, it also potentially may go to the Chinese Communist Party and also to the Chinese government itself for who knows what use, we just don't know. And I guess it's that lack of transparency that's got a lot of people concerned. So, but that again, we don't know what Facebook is doing with our data either. And I don't want to get into what aboutism here, but it is just one of these things that once our data leaves, uh, what happens to it? So anyway, the article is China's Digital Silk Road and Africa's Technological Future. It is absolutely a must read. It's on the Council on Foreign Relations website. We have a link to it in our show notes and on our website. We also showcased it in our newsletter earlier this month as well. Uh, It is absolutely essential reading because 
Modolani, what she does in this article is present a complicated, nuanced picture of it. And you don't see that very often in U.S. narratives on Chinese technology in Africa. So it is refreshing that you got this published on the CFR website. Congratulations on that, by the way. And it's healthy for people in the U.S. to hear your very, very complex, textured arguments on Chinese tech. So thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, are you on social media with your data being sucked up by someone and going somewhere? Thanks, Eric, and for this. Um, yeah, I I am on social media on Twitter. I think it's my Twitter handle is Matalani underscore Agbebi, and I'm also on LinkedIn. And I think just by searching my name, you will find me on there. Okay, I'll make it easier for people. I'll put links to both uh, Motolani's Twitter and also her LinkedIn page, again, in the show notes. Modolani is a researcher and instructor in the School of Management and Business at Tampere University in Finland. Joining us for the first time, I think, Kobus, this is the first time we've ever had a guest from Helsinki, so that's very exciting. Thank you so much, Modolani. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show, and we just love all of your, your writing and your ideas on these uh, very complex issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Kobus, what I enjoyed so much about Modolani's comments and her paper is how she's one of these people who complicates the narrative. And that's been a theme of what we've been doing over the past few months is complicating the narrative because we see the passion that's coming out of the U.S. and Europe about criticizing China in Africa in reverse. We're seeing the Chinese come out with their rebuttals. And it's so reductionist. It's so simplistic. It's so just agonizingly frustrating because all of those actors are oversimplifying it. But when we see what's happening in Uganda, and there was this last week, this unbelievable parliamentary hearing that was going on over the Entebbe airport scandal, it really revealed the complexity of the relationship and it complicates the narrative, how so much government incompetence was revealed in this Entebbe airport controversy. At the same time, we saw some MPs doing amazing oversight and due diligence in their quizzing of the government. We saw democracy really playing out in ways that are, are just so exciting to see in a semi-authoritarian country, mind you. So all of this complicates the narrative. And I think that if you are not the kind of person that just relishes being in complexity, then you simply cannot understand the China-Africa story. It is vastly more complex today than it was 10 years ago when we started this. And yet, in many ways, the narratives and the understanding of people in places like Washington, New York, Brussels, London, Paris, have not evolved to keep up with that complexity. That's a theme I keep coming back to, but that's what Modolani brought out in her discussion and her paper, which is why I, I really, really recommend everybody take a look at that. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I, I think also one, one of the great benefits of her work is that she locates all of all of this in Africa's development process, you know, um, you know, of which Africa's kind of cyber development process is a part. And I think that is that is frequently where the the kind of the the Western account of the situation falls down. It's like it does it frequently doesn't kind of take into account 
the the kind of the developmental implications of the internet in the first place, and then also the kind of implications of of systemic underdevelopment, which is which leads to these kind of situations. It, it's 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 partly kind of complete, like it, it's part of the problem that leads to issues like, for example, all of the bad contracts, like like all of this kind of like low level of government capacity in 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 the cases of of like Uganda, and that also it it, it facilitates this kind of very like kind of in some kind of cases kind of like purely evil kind of like like you know kind of use of the internet for for surveillance and authoritarianism and sometimes just kind of ham-fisted kind of you know kind of ways of trying to shut down a, a local controversy by simply switching off the internet you know kind of it, it like the kind of systemic underdevelopment leads to those kind of problems or it contributes to those kind of problems and what they what what i think western accounts of the situation frequently don't see is that from an african perspective Perspective. They look at China. They 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 see a country that went from from comparatively low levels of development to extremely high levels of development in a time span that is like you know a tenth of the time span that 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 it took in the West, and that you know that narrative and the the kind of role that the internet played, and then also the role that that the the kind of narrative that the Chinese put out of like well having a sovereign country based kind of like our own internet system helped that development that narrative plays a big role in some of these choices you know um and so not locating the the counter argument the, the civil liberties argument or the the kind of free open internet argument in a context of development is kind of where i think that western narrative ends up kind of falling down Yes, but also I think we can go too far on the development side too. I think there is really good, legitimate reasons for concern. And the lack of transparency about the way the Chinese handle data and what they're doing with it, and the fact that there are these sketchy incidents where Huawei employees, not the company, but Huawei employees, are doing bad things in places like Uganda and Zambia, that's worthy of investigation and worthy of concern. And I think we can go too far on the other side saying, well, it's better than nothing. Yes, it may be better than nothing, but that doesn't relieve the obligation of putting some type of oversight onto what the Chinese are doing and demanding some kind of transparency and accountability. And I think the Jonathan Hillman case from CSIS, there, there is some, there's a lot to it. I'm, I'm, I don't dismiss that. And I think the concerns in Washington are limited, are, are, excuse me, are reasonable, but they're limited in the fact that they stop at only, they only go so far and they're not nuanced and they don't take into account the development dilemma that you've talked about. But sometimes the development professionals and the African side oftentimes doesn't pay as much attention to the security concerns, which I think is also a problem. Did, did I make sense on that? Because it was a little bit convoluted, but you get my point here. Yeah, no, completely, completely, and you know, kind of so, so you know, and and that combined with with the kind of the the pressures on all commercial companies to try and kind of like to maximize their markets, you know, the that 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 kind of like contributes to this issue, you know, kind of like like one one of the case studies that that she mentions in her article that we didn't get around to discussing with her is this incident in Tanzania where um, CITCC, the Chinese company set up a, a national ICT backbone network, which ended up only being compatible with Huawei routers. Um, you know, so so that kind of, you know, when we're, like, in the, the cases when I've spoken to, to, to South African ICT professionals, they always emphasize that, that the issue, 
the you know kind of the issue with with the, the kind of pressure to not use Huawei is actually that it, it diminishes their 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 kind of facility to or their the you know their ability to to mix up the components in their network to make sure that they never they're never dependent on only one provider. And you know kind of one can see just simply how it makes commercial sense to make a country dependent on only one provider. For, for that specific provider, it's 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 great. Um, you know, so 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 this is the you know kind of the the civil liberties issues and the economic issues and the development issues. They all they all dovetailing. You know, kind of, and one has to one has to to address all of them at once. Well, since you brought up South Africa, we can't leave our discussion today without talking about what's going on with Huawei and your government, the South African government. So last week, news broke that the South African Labor Ministry, or the let me replace, it's the South African Labor Department, if I think. Is that correct? Is it ministry or department? Yes, I think so. I think Department, department of, Labor. of Labor. Okay. Filed suit against Huawei for the first time ever. That is, Huawei, unlike in the US and Europe, which deals with lawsuits all the time, South Africa never filed suit against Huawei before. But in this particular case, it was not about technology or spying or 5G or any of that. It was the fact that there are too many foreign employees at Huawei. And the government has a law, and correct me if I'm wrong here, can have no more than 60% foreign employees, correct? Or is it 40%? 40% for... If, there we go. Walk us through what's been going on, the politics here, because there are some politics here, and it's not entirely clear as to what's going on and why the government chose to go after specifically Huawei, because I presume they're not the only company doing this, and why now? Yeah, it's very interesting. the The government uh, is the government officials are, are are really kind of trying to to walk the line, saying they're not but only targeting Huawei, and they they kind of the, this is you know kind of they're going to be looking at other foreign firms in South Africa as well. Um, but it is very interesting that they that they started with Huawei. Apparently, they did a, a labor audit um, in 2020, which found that that I think something like 90 percent of of, of Huawei's employees are, are foreign, um, and interestingly, they don't say they only say non-South Africans, so they don't they don't specify whether these are Chinese or not or other foreigners. And that's a very important point here because a lot of people may assume because it's Huawei that, uh, and this plays into the whole story that China importing workers and things like that. It we shouldn't presume that that ninety percent of the workforce is Chinese, correct? Yes, I don't. I, 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 and I think they're not. I think. I think this is what we're probably talking about is a multinational workforce. You know, with with a strong Chinese component. I would. I would think. And this mainly Southern Africans. Do you think or Europeans? What do you think? I would. I mean, I would assume there was probably like a, a pretty kind of strong, strong kind of South Asian component in that group. You know, kind of. I mean, that that would be my assumption, but I'm not sure. Um, the um, you, you know, this I think is in part. You know, this is probably partly a response to the low skills level in South Africa, um, because it is interesting that you know, kind of that that like at the the top executive, you know, like the the, the five highest executives are all foreign, and then of their kind of like 
71 of the of, of the 71 kind of member kind of top executive um, core, 27 are foreign, which is relatively low. And then when you go, come to their kind of skilled and semi-skilled professionals, i.e. engineers, programmers, you know, so on, there you're talking about like in the 80s, like high 70s, high 80s, you know, kind of like percent of, of, of them are foreign. So so that makes me wonder whether it, you know, was partly a response to just the, just kind of how few skilled, such kind of skilled professionals there are in South Africa and, and how much demand there are. Um, you know, because there's many other kind of like ICT companies also running their their businesses, their African businesses out of out of Johannesburg. You know, kind of so so I think um, and and Cape Town increasingly. So you know, so so I think that was probably part of it. But so now the the government is is you know kind of facing its own set of pressures. So so there's you know South Africa has very very high unemployment rates. Um, so like just general unemployment is is sitting around kind of thirty five percent. But it's actually it's, it's there's a lot of hidden statistics there because that statistic doesn't count people who've given up looking for work. So in in so real unemployment across the whole population is closer to fifty percent, and youth unemployment is sitting in the mid sixty percent. So this is this is a, a time bomb waiting to go off. It's it's a real real problem, and um, you know, and and the, the kind of big insurrection that happened late, like mid last year in South Africa, is was part of that problem. So you know, so so they are facing a lot of political pressure to 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 favor jobs for South Africans, um, and this is probably part of this of of the, of the you know of of that issue. But the fact that they targeted the Huawei first is very interesting, and I'm not sure exactly why. Yeah, there's some there's symbolism and optics tied to the choice to go after Huawei. And and you know that Chinese ambassador Chen Xiaodong is sitting in the embassy in Pretoria just fuming, fuming that this wasn't done behind the scenes. That there cuz had the South African government wanted to resolve this quietly, it could have informed Huawei, it could have informed the embassy, "Hey guys, we have a problem." You know, we're not going to make a big stink out of this, but you're not in compliance with the law. You need to bring this under control. Basta, pasta would have been done. Okay, maybe that was the old days. Well, apparently, apparently the the, the order took place in 2020, and they've been in talks since then. And then apparently the talks broke down. So something happened. That's right. This is the this is politics now, and and they went and when they issued a big press statement on the government website saying, and it was very detailed. Normally, these types of statements from all governments are pretty short. You know, the Department of Labor has taken action against Huawei. That's it. Call so-and-so for more information. But they went into rather excruciating detail, which I thought was very interesting. And I think it reveals the politics of the moment. It's also interesting because uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, your president, in his State of a Nation address and in the follow-up debate about the State of a Nation address, that's an interesting custom that you guys have that a lot of other countries don't have, uh, employment and jobs was by far the number one issue. And yes. online, the reaction to it was, you know what, Cyril Ramaphosa, I don't care what you're saying about anything else. It's like, blah, 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 jobs. That's all I care about. Yeah, There is no yeah. more important issue in South Africa today than jobs. And this move against Huawei, to me, is part of that dynamic of the politics because is it a coinkadink that this happened 
during the period of the State of a Nation address, in between the two addresses? Yes. You know, that, that, that issue... I you think, think that's a coincidence no, or no, you think I, that's No, no, I really timed? don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's absolutely timed. Yeah, I, I think so. The, 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 timing, the timing is, you know, like seems to have a very kind of clear connection to this. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the thing is, you know, it is, it is really, it really is interesting because, for example, Facebook has big offices in, in Johannesburg, you know, is 60% of Facebook employees local? We'll see, I guess, you know, so it's, it's, it's very interesting, but like, yeah, I, I would have loved to have been on the call, like, like a, a, a silent observer of the call between the embassy and the government. Oof. Yeah, man, they were pissed. There's no two ways about it. Because, and, and again, it's a labor issue. And that is one of the top three things that China's critics about the Chinese engagement in Africa bring up. What is it? Imported labor. And the fact that they didn't specify whether it was, they just said foreign labor. Again, we don't know where that labor is coming from. And in a lot of people's imagination, they're going to think it's Chinese. As you pointed out, that would be a mistake. Uh, so we just don't know. But very interesting politics that are there. Um, we got a couple other stories that we're looking at and we're trying to find some guests for. I want to point everybody to, again, this Ugandan parliamentary hearing that happened last week about the Entebbe airport. We're looking for a guest to comment on that. If you have some suggestions or if you know about this, please reach out to me, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, because the politics of the Entebbe airport now are vastly more complicated than what it was made out to be last year with the whole Daily Monitor fiasco and you know, the China seizing the airport. That was all BS. That's not happening. This is a fascinating story. Uh, also, uh, just before we go, Kobus, people may have noticed that we did a slightly modified introduction of you. Yes. That uh, your title has changed. Yes. I, we, <laughs> so I, let's, I'm, let's just kind of put it out there. Let's, let, let's talk about what's going on. Yes, I'm delighted to say that I'm now full-time working at China Africa Project. Um, as we, we're going to be rolling out our services into French and Arabic, um, and which, which Eric will mostly be working on, and then I'll be taking over a lot of our, of our English work. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, this is a, this is a year, this is a dream that that's been like a decade coming. 12 you know? years in the making there. So we yes, are. it's like, like there's a lot of juggling of, of many different jobs and, you know, kind of this is, um, I, I am maintaining an affiliation with the South African Institute of International Affairs. It's an amazing institution, like one of South Africa, like one of Africa's most, most kind of venerable foreign policy think tanks. And I've had an amazing time working there and I'm continuing to work with the, with the folks there um you know on many projects and and we'll have a long-term relationship but you know kind of from now on the kind of bulk of my work is going to be on china africa project and i'm i'm delighted it's going to be so fun oh it's so fun and we've got some really exciting news as we've been talking about over the past few weeks regarding french and arabic our french site is almost done it's just amazing to see it take shape uh many of you know our french editor uh, Jeronima from the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're going to start doing weekly Twitter spaces. He's going to have his own French podcast. He's going to join us on the English podcast. And then in April, we're going to be launching our new Arabic language service that's going to focus on North Africa, into the Persian Gulf and the Middle East as well. And we've got so many cool things coming down the, the, the line. We're going to start doing video, live video as well, with all of our teams around the world. So we have 
Uh, it, we'll have Cairo. We'll have uh, Giro, who comes from the DRC. We've got Cobus in South Africa. And it's really going to be, again, now these really amazing voices speaking out on these issues that, as we pointed out, are just so much more complicated today than, than most people understand. And so we have a lot of cool things coming, and we would love for you to be a part of what we are doing. We appreciate the support that everybody gives us, uh, particularly in our Patreon community, where everybody's been so supportive, just again, to support this podcast. And also just with their, you know, we do all these notes and we're doing these podcasts, we do these Zoom calls, and it's really a whole lot of fun. Uh, and also everybody on our Patreon community gets a weekly digest that we put out now, which is the best stories of the week that we put together. If you'd like to join our Patreon community and to support us in what we're doing, we would be so grateful for it. Uh, this is a small independent media startup that is self-sustaining, and we're employing now a growing number of African and Chinese journalists, and it's something that we're very proud of, but it does need your support. If you could help us out, we would be very grateful. Patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Better yet, if you'd like to follow all of the work that we're doing, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. You'll get our daily newsletter and you'll have full access to the website and 4,000 articles that Cobus, myself, and all of these amazing contributors, scholars, academics, practitioners have written over the years. It's all searchable. We're upgrading our search, by the way, as well. So a lot of people have complained about our search tool. So we've got that in development. That will launch sometime in March as well to make it easier for you to find all of that and to use the search. So that'll do it for the podcast. We'll be back again next week. We're doing one a week right now just while we go through all these launches. Once things calm down a little bit, Cobus gets on board. We're going to go back to doing twice a week and our live videos and our Twitter spaces. So we'll have a lot coming down for you guys. And we're going to be broadening out beyond Africa to look at what's going on here in Southeast Asia, Latin America, Central Asia, and the Middle East as well to follow Chinese engagement in all of those regions. So whew, that's a lot to follow. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing and for following us and for your support. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll see you next week. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.